I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a very special show with an intellectual giant on the topic of U.S. foreign policy and the history of geopolitics. Returning guest, historian Alfred W. McCoy, author of such books as The Politics of Heroin and In the Shadow of the American Century, as well as the new book that we'll be talking about on this edition of Parallax Views, To Govern the Globe, World Orders, and Catastrophic Change. This is a real doozy of a conversation, an information-packed episode that I hope you'll find enlightening, that deals with the projected decline of U.S. hegemonic power, the rise of China on the world stage, catastrophic climate change, and what it all means for the current world order and the potential emergence of another world order to come. You may not agree with all of Alfred's viewpoints, but I think he does provide a rather interesting and invaluable analysis, and I hope you'll enjoy the conversation to follow. It's a bit of a depressing one at times, but this is a rather important topic. But before we get to that, if you're having issues with grief, trauma, PTSD, perhaps you're struggling with issues related to gender and LGBTIQ, maybe you need help with relationship or marriage issues uh, through counseling, well, if that's the case, I'd like to recommend to you the services of Alexander Yu, who offers holistic therapy with a welcoming and all-embracing approach. If you're in the California area, 
and looking for help in any of the aforementioned areas? Well, you can do no better than Alexander Yu, California license number 102886. Alexander can be reached by calling or texting 323-834-9828 or by email at therapy at alexanderyoo.com. Holistic Therapy with Alexander Yu. And now, with all that said, let's get right to the conversation with Professor Alfred W. McCoy, author of, again, the fascinating new book, To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. Hey, Parallax News listeners, before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Laud it for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel, or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I consider a huge influence on myself with regards to my thinking in both terms of history and foreign policy. Alfred William McCoy, author of a number of books, including the latest, To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change, also the current Fred Harvey Harrington Professor of History at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. How are you doing today, uh, Professor McCoy? Joe, uh, terrific. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. So the place I wanted to start when talking about this new book that you have out to govern the globe is delving into these terms of empire and world order, which you differentiate from, and especially diving into what we mean by world order, because I think within popular culture, world order has sort of taken on this very strange sort of John Bircher style meaning that is very far from how we see it discussed uh, in international relations and academia. And I think in a way that's done us a disservice uh, to sort of educating people about what world order means. Well, actually, the problem lies with both terms uh, that you mentioned, empire and world order, because empire is one of the most controversial uh, terms in American politics, uh, stretching back a century. Starting with the U.S. conquest of the Philippines in 1898, uh, the Democrats became anti-imperialists, and they used imperialism not as the analysis of a form of global governance, problematic though it might be, but as an epithet to denounce their Republican opponents. During the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union was denounced by the United States as an empire, Ronald Reagan famously called it the evil empire. 
So uh, in that circumstance, uh, American scholars could not study empire and certainly couldn't equate the term with the United States. That's where we get the origin of the idea of American exceptionalism. We had world power without the curls of, of empire. We were the exceptional nation. And the same is true for that terminology, world order. So um, we need, I think, to examine both of them objectively. Now, the, the problem with the, with the way the, the terms have been handled is that when the Cold War ended and the, the term empire lost its powerful pejorative, its emotional uh, uh, value, uh, and scholars started actually treating the United States as not only empire, but the most powerful empire in human history, we had a, a problem that the most powerful <clears throat> empire in human history was also the least studied. American scholars simply didn't do imperial history. I was able to study it because in my graduate work, I had a couple of professors from Britain for whom empire was a normal state of affairs. Theirs was passing away when I was studying with them, but it was, it was something real and it was a valid concept to study. So um, in the past 500 years, 600 years, uh, the, the period that I cover in my book, new book to govern the globe, there have been roughly 90 empires, large and small. And an empire is very simply the dominance of a, uh, uh, of a, of a, of a non-citizenry, of a people that's either adjacent or overseas, uh, and you exercise sovereignty uh, in their name. And so they are generally in the category of, of subjects, not citizens. So they have human rights, if you give it to them, but not civil rights, okay? So some empires, the, the most powerful of them all, have enough power to not only dominate a, a, a foreign society, a subject society, but to actually establish uh, a, a global system that encompasses an, uh, the whole world uh, or much of the world and stretches far beyond their imperial domains. Um, so uh, empires are, are hard and specific. They have armies, they fight battles, they have territories to be defended. World orders are kind of amorphous, and yet, uh, even though they have no armies and no borders and, and fight no wars, world orders are far more resilient and far more pervasive and, in a sense, more powerful than, than empires. World orders determine the languages people speak, the laws that govern their lives, the way that they work, the way they worship, and even the way they play. Because the greatest of world orders also disseminates pleasure and recreation, all kinds of values known as soft power. So uh, the critical issue that we're facing in our time, which is the subject of much of my book, um, is, is both the decline of American empire, American global power, if you will, uh, and, the, and, and the survival of its world order. Okay, if, if, a, uh, if an empire represents power, a world order often represents principle. It's a kind of institutionalization of the ideals that every empire has. Um, I believe in the book, not to interrupt you, but I believe in the book, you call it the, the delicate duality, correct? That's correct. Every one of these world orders that has existed over the last five years, and there've been just three of them, and we're now facing a fourth one. Every one of these world orders has had a duality between power and principle. Uh, in the case of the Spanish, uh, when they conquered the Americas, they committed these unimaginable human rights abuses that 
brought the population of Mexico from something like 20 million down to less than a million that destroyed effectively the indigenous population, eradicated the indigenous population of the Caribbean and had a similar effect in the Andes. And, and these were great crimes. And, and these great crimes in the exercise of, of state power by the Spanish empire also produced a reaction in civil society. The religious, particularly Dominican order, was horrified by these crimes and they began to develop a doctrine of universal human rights. And they launched a debate, which is in ultimately enshrined in the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So again, that duality. In the case of the United States, uh, the US at the end of World War II was the most powerful nation on the planet. Our, our military was enormous, we were triumphant. And um, we controlled about 50% of the world's economy uh, and industrial capacity. We were, you know, in terms of our relative strength and power, far more powerful than any other nation had ever been um, in, in, in the modern era, and indeed dating back almost to Rome. Um, and so at that moment of supreme power, the United States and its allies got together and decided they would construct a new world order uh, that enshrined these principles and this debate over human rights that have been continuing for five centuries. And so the UN Charter and the UN Declaration of Human Rights contain these very powerful principles. But on the other side of that duality, the United States violated those same principles almost from the time that articulated them. So the two key principles are uh, inviolable national sovereignty. Every people has a right to its own nation, which should have inviolable sovereignty. Well, the United States proceeded to violate that sovereignty, although we did it covertly. That was the whole reason for the CIA. I mean, how could the world's great global hegemon exercise its asymmetric power uh, when it was supposed to be respecting the inviolable sovereignty of all nations? The answer, do so covertly, hence the need for the CIA. Uh, and then on the subject of human rights, at the same time the United States was uh, propagating the doctrine of human rights, it was also developing new sophisticated psychological tor torture techniques, which it propagated among allies. And among, apart from sort of slavery and genocide, which are great crimes, one of the greatest violations of human rights is torture. And the United States propagated it and practiced it throughout the Cold War. So again, we, we, we created a, a, an inner, a world order grounded in powerful principles and right from the start, we began to violate those principles. But that world order enshrined in the United Nations, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the World Health Organization, hundreds of like organizations, all girded by the rule of law. That, that, that operates now apart from the United States. It's something we've created that, you know, that we were once the prime defender, but it now has strength and institutional integrity far beyond us. The critical question now, as we face the, the end of US hegemonic power by I estimate 2030 or thereabouts, will this liberal world order survive the transition to a new global hegemon, China, which is the first major power in the last 500 years that did not participate in this fraught, painful debate that produced this world order and its, its values of human rights. So really quickly, I, I don't know if we can talk about this for a bit, but uh, when we talk about the, the human rights issues and the differences between uh, you know, power and principle. I, I think there's this emergent line uh, that people are using more, uh, especially certain segments of the left that are trying to say that 
why do we even use this term human rights? It's just a way for the US uh, to sort of um, weaponize language against uh, other countries. And I think uh, just writing off this idea of human rights uh, is a mistake. And I think it also uh, forgets that it was groups like the NAACP that really uh, pushed for the adoption of human rights as a principle, especially after the ascendancy of the US and its world order. Uh, it's actually more fundamental than that. Um, as always happens in, in, in uh, the emergence of world orders, okay, and this duality of power and principle, it's the state which exercised power, but it's civil society that develops the principles and they lobby and pressure and manipulate and maneuver through a process I describe in the book. So if you take go back to the Spanish, it was the Spanish state, the, the crown, that was conquering and administering these territories. They were under direct royal administration of the Spanish crown. And it was the institutionalization, the embodiment of civil society, the religious orders, the church, the Dominicans particularly, who were the conscience of the society and articulated these principles of human rights. Um, the same happened under the British. In the 18th century, Britain dominated uh, the transatlantic slave trade. It was an, a source of enormous power and profit for Great Britain. Their great Atlantic Triangle, uh, firearms to West Africa, and then swapping those firearms to militarized kingdoms in West Africa, who used the firearms to collect slaves, slaves to the Caribbean, and then production of sugar, uh, rum and molasses, shipping that back to the United Kingdom. This great triangular trade was the source of Britain's emerging capitalist economy and imperial power. And at this high tide of, of, the, of the slave trade and Britain's dominance of it, there emerged <clears throat> a religious reaction in the United Kingdom among the dissident religious sects, the Quakers, the Methodists, and Anglican evangelicals. And they campaigned for decades for the idea of condemning the slave trade as, as an abomination, as a violation of human rights. And they were so successful that they got the British Parliament to pass a condemnation of it. In, and most people aren't aware of this. When the Napoleonic Wars came to an end at the Congress of Vienna, Article 15 of the treaty concluding those wars is a ringing condemnation, words that could be plucked from contemporary discourse, condemning the immorality of the slave trade. And then the British, the Royal Navy, spent the better part of 80 years and 2% of Britain's gross domestic product at a cost of 15,000 British sailors fighting the Atlantic slave trade and extirpating it. So, you know, that, of course, again, on the duality side, Britain then uh, came up with an idea of scientific racialism of higher and lesser breeds of humanity. Africa was deemed to be lesser breeds and that precipitated the scramble for Africa, the creation of colonialism and all these colonial regimes uh, extracted unpaid labor up to, let's say in the Belgian Congo, uh, Portuguese Angola, up to 26 days of uncompensated manual labor to build the colonial infrastructure for profit. So, you know, the British Empire was sort of halfway. And ultimately, it was at the United Nations where finally all the contradictions were resolved. And you get these ringing condemnations of racism, religious prejudice, 
and the Declaration of Universal Human Rights. And that didn't happen by accident. Again, it was civil society because the UN took form in two conferences. One was a kind of closed door conference in the last year of World War II, 1944. And the great powers got together behind closed doors and they had the idea, they would create an international organization that would have an empowered security council with the, the big five powers, you know, the United States, China, uh, Russia, Britain, France, would, would have permanent seats and they would run the whole organization. And then there would be this, this thing called the General Assembly that FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, would be a, 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 an organization for the little countries to blow off steam. They then took that plan to San Francisco in 1945 and suddenly it changed. The Latin American republics arrived with an idea of institutionalizing human rights. The NAACP, which you mentioned, turned up and lobbied very hard. Uh, Jewish advocacy groups, I think B'nai B'rith was the organization, again, lobbied very hard. And they transformed the nature of the organization. Instead of being a crude kind of imperial club, as was his original design, suddenly you had an empowered General Assembly. You had a UN charter that, that articulates principles of universal human rights. And then you had a very strong movement so that uh, three years later in 1948, you get the universal, the unanimous ad adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And that Universal Declaration of Human Rights became the basis for a sustained attack on apartheid in South Africa, which emerged, you know, and was actually already in the germ, but was formalized in the 1960s, okay? That boycott movement, that international condemnation was propelled, was empowered by the idea that it violated the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. At the same time, the NAACP in the United States used that Universal Declaration in the pleadings in Brown versus Board of Education, arguing that segregation was a violation of universal human rights. Okay, so, so you know, the, the concept of human rights is a very powerful instrument that civil society groups in worldwide can use. I mean, um, when I was living in the Philippines, I was struck by the fact that all these human rights groups, you know, uh, celebrated December 10th with an intensity. Nobody in America would know what that is, but that's the date in which the UN adopted, voted unanimously with few abstentions to adopt the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's very important for human rights groups internationally. You know, when you're in some dusty faraway place and you've got some brutal dictator, conducting crimes that would chill the blood. To have that principle enshrined is very important, okay? Now, I wanna to get to that year of, of 2030, but before we do that, in talking about human rights, is, and I know you've said that every empire sort of has this contradiction between uh, power and how power is exercised, often against uh, what the stated principles are. But at the same time, can't that contradiction also lead to an empire undermining itself? So like with the US, you know, we talk about human rights, but then we have allies that are consistently violating human rights, um, or we, we claim to be for human rights while having things like Guantanamo Bay. Can the exercise of that kind of power actually undermine uh, the empire and its world order? Oh, look, in the fullness of time, that contradiction, if it grows too wide, will subvert the empire. Um, let's take the case of torture, all right? 
the uh, publishing the, the publicity in 2004 with the release of those horrific photographs from Ramble Grave um, and the existence of Guantanamo with the documentation of the kind of abuses that have been committed against the detainees of Guantanamo is, a, uh, is something that has um, degraded the moral standing of the United States as a, a, a rightful leader of the international community. Um, indeed, you know, I, I I've been saying this in, since, oh gosh, I've, I've worked on torture for decades. I published three books on the subject. And, uh, you know, when Abu Ghraib happened, I, I, I analyzed it and I said that it was going to damage the US moral standing. Um, and, you know, at the time, it was a bit of a lonely voice, but just this fall, the New York Times published on front page the extracts of a letter signed by seven serving mid-ranking military officers who work in Guantanamo, denouncing CIA torture of, of, of one of the detainees, saying that it degraded U.S. principles, it was damaging the U.S. reputation in the world, and these are are, are mid-ranking serving officers who are right in the Guantanamo complex. And they are, uh, they, they, are, they are stating this with absolute clarity, okay? And these men, these are men whose careers are to advance and project US power beyond our borders. And so it, I think it's done enormous damage to our moral standing. Moreover, it's degraded our ability, for example, to deal with Putin in Russia and Xi Jinping in China, and they're serious and sustained abuses of human rights, particularly in the case of China. But to return to your original point, the contradiction between power and principle can clearly degrade the stature and lead to the slow erosion of, a, uh, of U.S. hegemony or any great power's hegemony. And sometimes the, 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 the difference can be much more striking. For example, uh, I'm trying to figure out what the shape of China's emerging world order will be, because it's it's clear that China is not just going to challenge the United States at the level of power internationally. China is trying to, to establish an alternative international system. China has made it very clear, for example, that um, it has very little respect for the international rule of law, which undergirds this entire uh, US world order. Uh, in 2016, they lost a, by unanimous decision, a case before the permanent tribunal in The Hague in which the Philippines had sued China over the construction of those bases in the Spratly Sea, one of which in a little thing called Scarborough Shoal, actually took away prime Philippine fishing grounds that are inside the 200 mile exclusive economic zone that the Philippines has under the UN law of the sea. And, and the justices at The Hague were absolutely clear that this was a complete violation by China and China just waved it away and waved away the whole international rule of law. Their treatment of the Uyghurs, confinement of a million people in prison camps, stripping them of their cultural identity, uh, crushing uh, repression. Again, they've been faulted that it, it has no purchase on them. So it's clear that the China is gonna be building a very different kind of international order. So the question is, what is the duality? Well, first of all, the principle is very clear. Whenever Xi Jinping speaks in international forum about the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, which is a trillion dollar development scheme 
focused on Eurasia and Africa. He talks about China uplifting 60 million people from poverty in China and says that China is committed to uplifting hundreds of millions of people from poverty worldwide through this massive development scheme. Okay, so that's the, that's the principal side of China's duality. Now, where's the power side? Well, literally it's electrical power. As a part of it, it's Belt and Road Initiative. China has become the leading exporter of coal-fired electrical power. And China now has so many coal-fired plants on the drawing boards in China and internationally that the head of the UN says that if those plants come online, if all those plants that are now scheduled and funded come online, it's going to set back you know, any chance of, of capping global warming at 1.5 or even 2 degrees centigrade. So that, you know, China saying that it's going to uplift people materially, yes, okay, it's, it's, that scheme can and probably will do that. But at the same time, it's doing it through the propagation of a form of electrical power, which is going to degrade the environment. And the world's poor, uh, much more than urbanized affluent people, live on the global commons, the, the sea, the strand, the forest, uh, the, 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 the savannah. They, they depend on that for a portion of their livelihood. And if that's degraded, well, the standard of living for those hundreds of millions of people that are being uplifted will be degraded as well. So that's so that, why there's a duality in, in China's. So then world. with regards to that year 2030, why do you pinpoint 2030 as the year where, uh, you know, basically the, the US side of empire uh, ends or things are reshuffled in terms of the, world order. And what does that entail? Because I think people forget that's going to have major ramifications uh, for the U.S. and for how we live. I mean, uh, we have a lot of people in the U.S. now pushing for things like uh, more social democratic reforms. I think if a reshuffling of world order happens, we may not even be able to get those reforms as easily as we thought. A couple of things. First of all, let me pull your question apart into two parts. First of all, why 2030? And second of all, what were the consequences of the transition being? Okay, um, well, <clears throat> this is a long-term process. It's been in the germ uh, really very clearly since 2001 when China was admitted to the World Trade Organization. Um, and it was, that was a, <clears throat> a bipartisan miscalculation in Washington, D.C. The United States was so powerful was so confident of its exercise of global power that we thought that we could admit China to the World Trade Organization, give them sort of full rights to trade as an equal in the international economy, and they would grow up to be good little Democrats and responsible citizens in the world order as we defined it. We had no conception of what would happen when arguably the oldest civilization on the planet with 20% of humanity within its borders entered the world economy. You know, when they, well, we had no idea that they might decide not to play nice by our rules. Well, by 2014, um, they had accumulated an extraordinary $4 trillion in foreign reserves, which it then started using uh, for the Belt and Road Initiative, a trillion dollar campaign to lay down a, a grid of pipelines, rails, and roads across the vast 6,000 mile wide Eurasian landmass and unify those two 
imagined continents, which are actually a, a single continent, into a functional market stretching from the Baltic Sea or the Atlantic all the way to the South China Sea or the East China Sea. Okay, And when China started doing that, its economy started growing very rapidly. Uh, and PricewaterhouseCoopers, the international accounting firm, estimates that by 2030, in terms of the purchasing power equity, the real value of a dollar or yuan in China versus a dollar in the US, what you can actually get for your money, that China's economy will be at least 50% larger than the US economy, okay? Not just, it won't be just the, the biggest economy in the world, they'll be 50% bigger than the US economy. And they, they, they use that, that $4 trillion, okay? Or they, they, sorry, they made that $4 trillion and they've used it to become the workshop of the world. And they're also now, um, there's a scheme called China 2025, in which China is aspiring to become the world leader in a number of technologies, artificial intelligence, aeronautics, uh, rail transportation, et cetera. You know, there, they, there's also the Shanghai Cooperative Organization. Yeah. That's part, well, there's that, that's, a, that's part of their alternative international order. So that by 2030, when China's economy is projected to be 50% larger than the US economy, that will, of course, carry with it a corresponding economic influence. Okay. The other thing that'll mean is since the United States and China spend roughly two and 3% respectively of their gross domestic product on defense, that means that China's military will actually probably be as powerful overall and in a number of areas more powerful than the US military. Now for Americans, you know, who think of us as, we think of ourselves as the most powerful military nation on the planet, it's, most Americans don't realize that in a number of areas, um, like, for example, um, uh, missile defense, ballistic missiles, integrity of satellite communications, China's technology is already ahead of ours. Okay? They're, 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 they're better than we are. Uh, uh, <clears throat> and uh, so uh, even in 2019, uh, the Pentagon began wargaming uh, a major conflict between China and the United States over Taiwan. They did it 18 times. And in the Pentagon's wargaming, the United States lost 18 times, right? So, you know, um, <clears throat> their, uh, their first target is to push us beyond what they call the first island chain, which is a, we call the Pacific littoral, a string of islands running from Japan uh, through Okinawa, Taiwan, the Philippines, down to Australia. They want to push us out of that area. So they built those bases in the South China Sea and they're maintaining aggressive patrolling in the East China Sea to push the Japanese out. And they wanna push us all the way past the second island chain, which is basically the Marianas, um, which is about halfway between Hawaii and, and the Pacific Littoral. And so basically split the Pacific with the United States. They wanna push us back, all right? The other thing that's happening, and this is very important, and, and most Americans use the word geopolitics, they have no idea what it means, okay? And it's a, it's a very interesting kind of analytical tool. But when you think in geopolitical terms, okay, and this is something I did in the book, okay, um, I, I looked at this succession of hegemonic powers, uh, Portugal, Spain, Holland, Britain, the United States, and now China. And, you know, despite an amazing change over the span of five centuries and all kinds of differences in diversity, they all shared one thing in common. All of them have struggled to dominate the Eurasian landmass, right? 
That's been the key to their power. Um, in the case of the United States, we did it very simply. Through the NATO alliance in 1949, we had a kind of anchor of military bases in Western Europe on the Western axis of the Eurasian landmass. And in 1951, we signed four bilateral mutual defense treaties with Japan, South Korea, the Philippines and Australia, that Pacific littoral. And so we had another axial point at the Eastern end of Eurasia. And then between these two anchors, we laid down rings of steel embodied in the sixth fleet in the Mediterranean, the seventh fleet in the uh, Pacific and the Indian oceans, air bases, and then in our latest step, 60 drone bases stretching from Sicily to Guam, okay? And this allowed us to dominate Eurasia throughout the Cold War and its aftermath. And China is systematically breaking that control. First of all, under the Belt and Road Initiative, they're laying down this amazing grid of gas pipelines, rails, and roads that are all that are stretching all the way across the Eurasian landmass. And then they have ringed the, the tricontinental world island of Europe, Asia, and Africa with 40 major modern ports that they control, you know. Um, uh, from uh, the uh, from South China, Hambantota uh, uh, and Sri Lanka, uh, ports around the coast of Africa, around the coast of Europe, they have ringed the the world island with these forty ports. That if you look at my map in my book, where I I map the Portuguese ports that they had during their period, there's a surprising overlap. It's the same geopolitical design between. 1500 and 2100, you know, <clears throat> 600 years with the same geopolitical design. And if this, if this grand geopolitical design works, and if Xi Jinping realizes a vision of creating a kind of unitary market that stretches across the whole Eurasian landmass, well, profit, power, and commerce will flow as if by natural law towards Beijing. Okay, and so, you know, um, uh, it's that very powerful geopolitical design that explains a great deal about China's rise. And if this scheme works, even in part, it'll just mean the United States will be pushed out. Moreover, China is not just doing it economically. China's Navy is undergoing a massive expansion. They built those bases in the South China Sea. They're engaged in constant military maneuvers. They're, they're trying to push us out. They're trying to cut those lines of steel that we laid down, all right, um, uh, during the Cold War to control Eurasia. And, you know, and, and part of our decline is self-inflicted. Donald Trump's degradation of NATO, you know, his constant questioning about, you know, whether or not we would observe the article of mutual defense in NATO, his constant deriding of, the, of, that, uh, of that alliance has weakened it. Europe is now moving to develop its own European Defense Force and to think about its destiny as a, a, a power separate and apart from the United States. And China's ongoing trade and relations in, uh, in Asia are going to mean that over time, I would expect that those bilateral ties of Japan, the Philippines and Australia with the United States are going to, are, are going to wane. And so that position of the Pacific literal, I think, will decline. So through all these methods, China will break the U.S. instruments of dominance over Eurasia. It's already actually doing so right now. And second, lay down these commercial and military links 
that will give it control over the vast Eurasian landmass, which is the epicenter of global power, home to 70% of the world's population and productivity. So then the second part of that question, I know you were going to get to it, was uh, what would the consequences be for the U.S. come 2030? Like, How are we going to fill things personally when the reshuffling happens? Yeah. One of the advantages the United States has had as the great global hegemon, okay, um, was the dollar is the global reserve currency. Um, back in 1944-45, when the United States was putting together the current world order, not only were these conferences about the UN, the, the governance side of it, but also there was a conference at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, that built the formal instruments of the international economy, laid down what became the World Trade Organization, organized the International Monetary Fund to manage economic relations among the major powers, and then the World Bank to develop the, the lesser, the, the, the poor developing nations to bring them into the global economy. All these instruments were created systematically. And one of the key artifacts of this system was that the dollar was established as the global reserve currency. And it was uh, that all currencies would be convertible to the dollar on the basis of $35 for an ounce of gold. Okay, that was the, the system. And then in 1971, as the world economy grew too big for the United States to keep you know, shipping gold for Fort Knox, right? Uh, the Nixon administration announced that henceforth, you know, we wouldn't be shipping any gold. We wouldn't be converting. The people just had to store their dollars in, 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 in the banks, uh, in, their, in their central banks. And what this meant is that in a sense, we constructed a grand imperial bargain the world sends us oil and minerals and, and timbers and motor vehicles and uh, all kinds of instruments of advanced technology. And what do we give the world in exchange for this wealth, this bounty that it gives us? You know, all the commodities in our stores that are manufactured abroad in China and Vietnam and Bangladesh. Uh, <clears throat> uh, what do we give them instead? We give them brightly colored paper, monopoly money, treasury notes and dollars, which are basically the cost of printing. Uh, and, and that's an incredible bargain. And, and when you think about it, okay, what is the social contract in the United States? A very weak social safety net, okay? Very low wages, right? But so how do ordinary American workers survive in a situation of weak social safety net and poor wages? Well, they have cheap commodities. Food is cheap. Housing has historically been cheap. It's not anymore. And that's a real problem. And you know, actually, the housing market shows us what happens when suddenly these cheap goods start getting to be expensive, okay? That unleashes real social tensions. And so as the, as the, the, as the, as the dollar's position as global reserve currency fades, and we can no longer just ship printed paper abroad to get these cheap goods, and the cost of these goods rises to their actual, their actual cost, right? And Americans start having to pay many times more than they're, they're paying for goods. The, it's going to shake the foundations of this society and force a, you know, a, a reorganization of this social contract of low wages in, um, compensated by the low cost of, of goods. And we're seeing this high level of inflation, the kind of pressure that's putting on Americans. We have an inflation like this in about 40 years. We suddenly we can see that the cost, you know, this is getting unpleasant. You know? And so when this grand imperial bargain uh, that we get from the dollar being global reserve currency comes to an end, when the we're going to have to pay the bill in the international money, 
right, that uh, becomes less and less a dollar. It's already the, the renminbi. China's currency is now part of those basket of currency and has been since 2015. So the, the yen, the euro, and the, the, the Chinese yuan or renminbi, when those grow and the dollar share shrinks, also means that we can't simply balance our budget or uh, in a sense, we can't just simply cover the cost of our unbalanced budget by, by issuing debt and, and having the world buy our T-notes basically at zero interest, which they're doing now. So, you know, at, the, at a fiscal level and at a level of household economics, this is going to impact very strongly, very readily, and every American will feel it in the way they live. So I want to get into the climate change part, but real quickly, since we were talking about military power and whatnot, I, I'm just curious as to how you feel about, uh, so we just had the, the the new Pentagon budget pass, and I think a lot of people that are more dovish are upset about that. There's concerns over Taiwan. Where do you stand on all that? Should we be taking a more hawkish approach to China, or is it more nuanced than that? Yeah. Um, look, one of the things I try to do in the book is, is to be, as much as possible, an objective analyst and to separate my political views and my, my rec policy recommendations, okay, to separate the two. I think if you make policy recommendations at the same time as you're trying to conduct a, an objective analysis, you're skewing your objective analysis, okay? So policy recommendations is not something I do in the book, okay? I'm just trying to track the trajectory of deep, powerful global forces over the span of seven centuries, and thereby get enough of a sense of what are the deep underlying forces of history that are moving human society forward, so I can track that into the future, okay? So recommendations, what should the United States be doing? I don't know, but what is the United States? What's a, a smart thing for the United States to do? And what's a not so smart thing to do? Okay, uh, well, and I know a lot of people don't agree with me, but I think Barack Obama and his team were really smart. And they had the only strategy I've seen for containing China. But Obama came up with this idea, first of all, a military pivot from the Middle East. He wanted to get out of the Middle East and shift our uh, uh, military resources back to that Pacific littoral position to defend our position in the Pacific and renew our alliances with our allies. And he sort of started it but he couldn't get out of the Middle East. It actually now is beginning to happen under the Biden administration once he would finally withdrew us from Afghanistan. Okay, so that was the first thing he did. But the most important thing he did was he realized that we could have two giant trade treaties, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which encompassed about 40% of world trade, and then something called TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which uh, the European, Union has about 20% of world trade. So together with these two treaties, he could redirect 60% of all world trade towards the United States so that China could build its massive infrastructure at a cost of you know, a better part of a trillion dollars across the Eurasian landmass. But the substance of, 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 of that region, its trade, instead of flowing across Eurasia from Europe to China and back and forth, et cetera, would flow from uh, Asia across the Pacific to the United States, from Europe across the Atlantic to America, and that would render the Belt and Road Initiative a hollow shell and rob China of the economic substance of its grand scheme. Well, needless to say, that whole thing crashed and burned. 
And you know, the left <laughs> in the United States and Europe bitterly attacked uh, the European left, uh, killed the, the the European version of it, and opposition among progressives in the United States killed that treaty in the United States. Then when Trump came in with his American First policy and his denunciation of these multilateral trade pacts, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership died a death for the United States. It actually still exists today. The other 11 partners went ahead with it. And irony of ironies, China is now lobbying to join that partnership. So the United States is the only nation that's not going to be in the partnership. So was it smart of the United States to kind of pull back from that one? Probably not so smart. And then what China's done is China has something called the Regional Economic Cooperation Program, which is the biggest trade pact in human history in the Asia-Pacific region. And so the combination of that one and China's incipient membership in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, now renamed, is going to mean that China is going to be at the epicenter of these exchange agreements, not the United States. So, I mean, what should the United States done? Well, if we ratified those two trade agreements, that would have had deleterious consequences. There would have been a cost of those. I mean, they contain, for example, very objectionably, arbitration tribunals so that there were disagreements between countries and, and companies, that instead of going to the courts, it would go to this sort of transnational privatized judicial system in which the companies would have preferential power and preferential decisions. It would have been a, a shifting of power from uh, the states and societies to, to the corporate world. And, you know, that's a, there, there's a reason for the objections, but you know, that might've worked. And, do, but, do you, uh, just out of curiosity, do you ever get the impression that Zbigniew Brzezinski may be rolling in his grave over all of this? Oh, yeah. Um, let's, let's introduce Zbigniew Brzezinski, okay? And <clears throat> we talked earlier about the theory of geopolitics and its use and, and the way I tried to, to actually use my book as kind of a seminar for readers. So when you finish my book, you'll have a better understanding of geopolitics. It won't be just some word that's thrown around. It'll become a, a dynamic tool. So where did geopolitics come from? Well, in the modern era, it started in 1904 when a British academic named Sir Alfred Mackinder published an article in the Royal Geographical Journal about the World Island. And he looked at the map and he said that when you, when you redraw the map and he published a version of this map, what you see is that there are three continents that are joined, okay, Africa, Europe, and Asia, and they form the, uh, a body of land that he called the World Island. And then there are these outlying small islands like Greenland and Iceland, Australia, and North America and South America. These are marginal to the epicenter of world power. Um, and Zygmunt Brzezinski was a, a self-conscious student of Halford Mackinder, and he turned Mackinder's abstractions McKinder tried to play geopolitics, wasn't very good at it, okay? Um, but that's another story. Brzezinski swallowed McKinder whole, understood the dynamics of Eurasia. Uh, McKinder said, for example, that Central Asia was a pivot region, and he who controls the heartland, this pivot region, controls uh, uh, the world island, and he who controls the world island controls the world. That was one of McKinder's axioms. Okay, so how do you exercise it? So uh, Brzezinski had the idea that he would drive radical Islam uh, during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan uh, in the 1980s. He would drive 
radical Islam from Afghanistan into then Soviet Central Asia, like a wedge. And he would then accomplish his objective. Eastern Europe, 3,000 miles to the west, would be liberated from the Soviet empire. Brzezinski accomplished this. You know? And then in his retirement, Brzezinski said that there were you know, several conditions for the perpetuation of US global power. He said the US you know, would remain the dominant global power as long as it preserved, first of all, its bases at the eastern and western axes of Eurasia, like we've talked about. And as long as there was no dominant power in the center of Asia, okay, the heartland, Mackinder's heartland, okay, classic Mackinder stuff. Well, when you think about what's happened, all of Brzezinski's conditions for the perpetuation of US global power have been violated, okay? Uh, the NATO alliance has weakened uh, those bases on the Pacific littoral, on the other axis of Eurasia, have been diminished by our involvement in the Middle East, uh, and by the progressive attraction of those Asian allies for China. And then China, through the Belt and Road Initiative, has consolidated its control. You know, Brzezinski said there could be no single power dominating Central Asia. Well, that's China now, okay? They're dominating the pivot region, the heartland, okay? And so, you know, Brzezinski, you're right. He should be rolling in his grave because we didn't pay attention to him, you know? Uh, <clears throat> and I, uh, I thought of him, by the way, because I know he influenced Obama a little bit. Um, yes and no. Uh, uh, Brzezinski, Brzezinski I, you know, it, it's really funny. Brzezinski understood McKinder. He understood geopolitics and he knew how to play it. He was one of the very few people that knew how to play it. And Obama independently, or whether it was other, I don't know whether there were acolytes of Brzezinski, uh, who was a, a uh, you know, who was a Democrat and who had been the national security advisor of Jimmy Carter, whether decades later there were any of his acolytes still around with his with Brzezinski's ideas. Um, uh, but Obama actually, his strategy was very McKinder-esque. It was very geopolitical. This idea of one, focusing on Eurasia, and two, the idea of draining that vast continent of its economic lifeblood to these trade packs. That was another brilliant geopolitical scheme. Now, you know, what really surprises me is that, you know, you think there are these people in Washington, there are these think tanks, these foreign policy experts, these military guys who we know think, in, at least in, you know, in the movement of troops across land, you know, you'd think that all of our foreign policy specialists would be thinking geopolitically. What is surprising is almost none of them are. It's a surprisingly elusive concept. It's not that hard, but it's kind of slippery and elusive. And so people talk about this, but they don't really understand it. And this leads to, you know, disastrous things like the U.S. plunging into Afghanistan for two decades when it was geopolitically, you know, kind of inconsequential. Yeah. So the, the last thing I wanted to touch upon, and I, I know we'll have to cover this sort of quickly, but and th this is sort of a two-part question. A lot of your book deals with catastrophes and how they've affected past global orders. The catastrophe we're facing now, climate change is a bit different. And also something that you point out is that this is actually going to uh, probably be a huge obstacle uh, for China's bid for an alternative world order, because in 2050, uh, you know, climate change is projected to really affect Shanghai in a way that is going to be deleterious for China. Could you speak to that? 
Sure. <clears throat> As we said earlier in our discussion, empires come and go. There have been 90 empires in the last 600 years, but there have been just three orders, three world orders, right? So world orders are so deeply embedded in human society, the languages people speak, uh, the way they worship, the games they play, uh, that they should go on forever. And so what it, uh, what it takes is some great catastrophe to destroy a world order and give birth to another. So the, the first world order emerged from the, the Black Death of 1350 to roughly 1420. In the first bout of the Black Death, 60% of the population of Europe and China died. And the Mongol Empire, which dominated everything from China across Central Asia right to the banks of the Danube, it was destroyed in this pandemic, right? Um, the next great disaster that destroyed the Iberian World Order, which lasted 300 years, far beyond the imperial power of Spain and Portugal, was the 20 years of Napoleonic Wars, coinciding with Britain's Industrial Revolution and its development of steam power. And the British World Order lasted a full century until it was destroyed in the cataclysm of World War II which killed over 70 million people and ravaged much of the planet. And out of that great catastrophe was born the US world order. Now, what we're seeing is the, the coincidence of climate change and the geopolitical rise of China eclipsing the US world order. So if China rises and becomes a global hegemon and develops an alternative world order sometime around 2030, the question you're asking is, how long is this going to last? And my answer is not very long at all. I would give it two or three decades tops. Why? Because that, that contradiction between power and principle that we talked about in China's case, principle, the uplift of the hundreds of millions of Eurasia, uh, peoples in Eurasia and Africa through rapid economic development, and, and the, uh, the power side of it literally fueling that with China's economy and its, uh, its development of these foreign societies uh, through coal power. And so it's unchecked global warming. China is the source of 30%, all by itself, 30% of all the greenhouse gases being pumped into the atmosphere. And they have, they have coal-fired electrical power schemes on the drawing board in China and as a part of its Belt and Road Initiative that are enough to basically slow any reduction of greenhouse gases for the immediate future. So, um, so, uh, so China is going is literally digging its own grave, right? Because the science and what I do in the book is I simply take the projections of environmental sciences and I overlay on top of that the changing dynamics of international political history and and try and chart the rest of this tumultuous 21st century. And what I see is. U.S. global power fading by 2030, China having two, maybe three decades as a great global hegemon, and then global warming begins to ravage China. By 2050, much, if not most, of Shanghai is literally going to be underwater because of the rising seas caused by global warming. All right. And, and real, real quick, I just want to note, you have a ton of footnotes in the book referencing this. I have one of the uh, footnotes pulled up, the article from The Guardian from a few years ago, unsurvivable heat waves could strike heart of China by end of century. I mean, you, you have the, the, the data and the footnotes on this. Well, 
that's the second thing that's going to happen to China. So <laughs> Shanghai is a city of 18 million people. And there are other Chinese coastal cities that are going to be similarly ravaged. These are China's great export engines. Okay. The other thing is because of those heat waves, by 2060, 2070, according to studies done by a team headed by a professor at MIT, the North China Plain between basically Shanghai and Beijing, which is currently home to about 400 million people and is the agricultural and industrial heartland of China, will become one of the least, if not the least, habitable places on the planet. By 2060, 2070, China is going to have hundreds of extreme heat waves, and it's projected they're going to have five periods of what's called 35 degrees wet bulb temperature, 35 degrees centigrade wet bulb temperature. What is that? That's the balance between heat and humidity when the human body cannot sweat. And an adult sitting, not working, not moving, in 35 degree wet bulb temperature is dead in six hours. Healthy adult dead in six hours. And there are gonna be five periods of 35 degree wet bulb temperature, uh, which has so far not been achieved on the planet in North China Plain. So China is going to be ravaged by climate change, arguably more than any other major nation on the planet, all right? And that is gonna mean that whatever world order, whatever foreign commitments China has, China's gonna to have to pull back. And that means that by mid-century, the world could be facing a situation it hasn't had in six centuries. There will be no world order. The world will be threatened with plunging into disorder. And what this means in the terms of climate change, by 2050, it's estimated by the World Bank and others that there will be between 200 million and 1.2 billion climate change refugees you know, people desperately fleeing from battered coasts and ravaged fun plains and aridifying desert fringe, desperately fleeing simply to survive to the temperate zone. And as this happens, you know, the, the world is going to have to respond. Now we can, we can just let it go and we can face uh, a tide, an unimaginable riding tide of violence and war and death as people fight over territory and water in the most brutal and primordial conflict, or, or we can construct a new kind of more empowered world order. And I think that the situation with climate change is going to get so severe that the world, instead of meeting in these sessions as we are now, like COP26 in Glasgow, will actually reform the United Nations or a successor organization. If we're gonna reform the United Nations, what, is it, what do reforms require? Well, very simple. Change the nature of the Security Council. Get rid of the five permanent members and their vetoes, all right? And have rotating membership in the Security Council so it's more genuinely representative. And therefore, it, 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 it's more responsive to the world and therefore its mandate for the world is taken more seriously. And this empowered United Nations or similar organization would need to exercise sovereignty over three limited but critical areas. First of all, if circa 2050, and there will be any nation is still emitting uh, carbon in the atmosphere, they would be heavily sanctioned and forced to switch to alternative energy. Second, uh, those, that tide of humanity, the 200 million to 1.2 billion people that are moving, okay, that there would have to be an empowered equivalent of the UN High Commission for Refugees that would make voluntary resettlement mandatory. And third, 
the transfer of funds from the prosperous temperate north to the troubled impoverished tropical south, which is now voluntary, would have to be mandatory. And so that there could be, first of all, food relief uh, and, and then uh, kind of infrastructure development to deal with climate change. This would mean a new world order like any we've ever seen before, not just a voluntary organization, but actually an organization with some kind of sovereignty in these limited areas. Uh, and that would save us from this threat of unimaginable global disorder. So in closing with that, I just wanted to mention that while I was reading that portion of your book, that final chapter, uh, it brought to mind for me uh, the work of, of John Mersheimer. Um, people forget that he writes in the introduction of the great tragedy of power politics. And I, I must say, I think he's a very astute voice uh, when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, he writes that, you know, we currently live in an anarchic world system, but, you know, we don't know what the future looks like. And with certain catastrophes that could happen, we could see a complete change in uh, the way the nation state system is set up. Uh, and I think that's ultimately what climate change may do. We may have to completely reorder the way we do things and reorder the way we think about world order and global governance. Yeah, Mearsheimer is a smart man, and I've, I've quoted him in a number of articles and things I write. He's, a, he's an acute observer, and I think that's a, an important insight. If we're looking for a model of how the world might operate in this kind of system, think about the European Union, okay? All those states are still sovereign. Uh, they run their own foreign policy. They have their own armies, et cetera, et cetera. They speak their own languages, but they secede a critical portion of their sovereignty uh, to the European Union. Why? Because for a thousand years, Europe was the most bloodstained continent on the planet, fighting incessant wars that, you know, not only the Napoleonic Wars, which ended the Iberian Order, World War One, World War Two. at the end of World War Two, they finally realized that, you know, <laughs> this has got to stop. We, you know, we've got to stop slaughtering each other, you know, every 20, 40, 100 years. Uh, and so out of that was born the, all this process that produced the European Union. I think the world is facing a, a, a similar catastrophe, not man-made, not war. Well, it's actually man-made climate change, but, but climate change and, and that disaster will force the nations of the world to form, to borrow a phrase, a more perfect union with ceding these, these very specific and narrow areas of sovereignty. I mean, they're critical in many ways, but, but narrow areas of sovereignty, and you preserve all the other uh, apparatuses of sovereignty. It's a small reform uh, with enormous unimaginable benefits, and the alternative is almost unthinkable. Well, it's, the, the alternative is, you know, barbarism, basically. Yes. You know, great crimes of the like we have not seen since the Iberian age. Great crimes. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you again, Alfred W. McCoy. You stayed a few minutes over, and I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm glad we got to talk a little bit about uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski. We share an interest in him. Uh, how can my listeners get a hold of your book? And thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. The book is available on Amazon.com. <laughs> In the modern age, if you Google my book, you'll see a, a similar topic published by a billionaire, an actual billionaire. I would have thought, you know, that billionaires were satisfied with space shots and maxi yachts, but no, they want to have influence and think about the future of the world. And so there's an actual billionaire that has a similar book. He's obsessed with the, the U.S. dollar's global reserve currency. Um, you know, he's a financial guy, and so he has a, a narrow financial view. 
But anyway, the broader perspective, seven centuries of human history, Amazon.com. And thank you again, Alfred McCoy, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you very much, JJ. Pleasure to be there. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Professor Alfred W. McCoy, author of To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change, available now, courtesy of Haymarket Books. Check it out, folks. And uh, as always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's a $1, 5 $10, $15, dollars tier. Any amount will help. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout-out. So, producer's credit shout-outs to Mark Arlen Spartacus, Gunner Ed Gratz, James Mickey Bryan, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick Emilia, Chase Chris Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan David, Holland Martin Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Use, please consider supporting me at the $10 tier and above, and if you do, you'll also be greatly helping this show's prosperity along with our few gracious sponsors. So, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. If you appreciate the work I do, again, please consider making a monthly donation there. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike to to Parallax with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.